This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So, you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall, rock-climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So, whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. The poem says, Human voices wake us, and we drown. But I've made this podcast with the belief that human voices are what we need. And so, whether from a year or 3,000 years ago, whether poetry or prose, whether fiction or diary or biography, here are the best things we have ever thought, written, or said. One of the very first episodes of this podcast uh, was a long excerpt from Mary Pfeiffer's 1994 book, Reviving Ophelia, about the lives of teenage girls in the late 80s and early 90s. And for a long time now, I've been wanting to post an excerpt from uh, a book about teenage boys from the 1990s. And this is called, uh, this book is called Lost Boys. Why Our Sons Turned Violent and How We Can Save Them, by James Garbarino. And I found this book to be just as as good as Mary Pfeiffer's. And not only do do we find uh, things of universal application in both books, which is the reason why I'm reading from both of them on this podcast, we can find things... uh, that were just as wise or just as tragic from the 1990s as we uh, as we can find today. But also it's in a way sort of quaint to look back at a world before the internet really took off and obviously before there was uh, even smartphones or social media. Although uh, from what I've read and heard snippets of here and there, the the basic uh, demarcations, you might say, between the two books still hold, and that is that uh, the teenage girls, their issues and their problems are based around uh, relationships between them, between the girls themselves and their families or their peers, and uh, the emotional issues that come up when those relationships have problems or simply don't work. And the issue with boys, as always, is violence, physical violence. And I think that that is basically held uh, in the internet age, in the social media age, where where, where the anxieties that teenage girls find online is in the body comparisons that they come across uh, with their peers or nowadays just with supermodels or porn stars or whoever it is that is being shown to them and they're being told to be like this person. So it's a it's a kind of a social, emotional shaming. Whereas uh, the young boys experience uh, violence in some way, whether it is, uh, I guess, more aggressive porn is what you would talk, what you would say 
or just the um, or just the online games that you can play uh, together. Um, that's interesting to think about. But these are three passages from James Garbarino's book, Lost Boys. And really, I hope with uh, this book, I hope to pick up a thread that I began with Mary Pfeiffer's book. And hopefully I will find space to read here more from uh, books like these, but also uh, true crime or just uh, books about uh, crime itself, if not actual true crime books. And this is one thing, this is a section that James Garbarino entitles The Soul in Hiding, and this is what he says. How does a soul survive in a world of torment? What keeps a soul from dying? And this is a wonderful thing about his book, is that he is a PhD, he has written many other books um, about violence, uh, violent men, and criminality, but he is not afraid to use the word soul. He's not afraid to say that uh, offering violent young men, and violent grown men for that matter, uh, the option of religion in, in whatever case, or just spirituality, whatever you want to call it, uh, he's not afraid to say that that is sometimes what works best. So he says, how does a soul survive in a world of torment? What keeps a soul from dying? The conventional psychological answer has several parts. The first is temperament. The fact that children differ in constitution and in the emotional predispositions they bring with them into the world. Some are very sensitive to upset or threat. Others seem naturally hardy. Some children seem to have a positive orientation to life, to be sunny and light. Others are burdened with negativism, gloomy from the start, predisposed to depression. Temperament plays an important role in determining which souls survive and which depart. A second part of the equation is resilience, the ability to bounce back from or overcome adversity. Much has been made of the role played by differences in resiliency in accounting for the fact that most children who have had a bad time in early life don't become delinquents or murderers. And he points to chapter 6 in his book where he explores the origins, meaning, and the limits of resilience as a concept. And there is a third force at work. This is the role of love being unconditionally loved. In an abusive family, it may be the one small voice of kindness that comes from a relative, too weak to change the situation, but nonetheless able to feed the child's soul enough tidbits of love to sustain it during its hibernation. It's a long winter of discontent. In a cold, impersonal orphanage, it may be the one friend who kindly shares her own meager resources. I would be bluffing if I said I can always specify what in this world can sustain a child living in the midst of an earthly hell. Beyond these findings from social science, there is a fourth voice, a fourth force, 
Yet another answer to the question of why some souls stay active and others hibernate. Removing my psychologist's hat for a moment, I would have to call it divine intervention, a single thread of light that feeds the spirit. Sometimes it seems like an amazing grace that finds the spark in a child's soul before it dies out entirely and that keeps it alive, ready to shine brightly if the child's social conditions ever permit that to occur. At other times, the fourth force is a special talent or ability in the child, or an image he possesses of some better world. I see this in a boy named Byron. What or who sustained his soul while he was being held hostage in the torture chamber of his father's house? Listening to him and reading the documents in his social history, I recognized his small connections to love and to the divine amidst the horror. For one thing, despite her many failings, his mother still loved him. She could not protect him from his father, who terrorized them both, and she herself sometimes whipped him in a mistaken effort to guide him. But she did love him, and we must never underestimate the value of love as the most important nutrient for the soul. Noticing the cross around his neck, I ask Byron about his religious beliefs. I believe in God, and I believe that God has a purpose for me, he replies. Where does that come from, I ask? My grandmother, Byron says. She believes, and she taught me to believe, too simple faith. Even if Byron's life is spared by the courts, the best he can hope for is life in prison. But he does hope for that. When he fired on the police officer he killed, and this is a story that is told earlier in the book, the officer's partner returned the fire, and Byron was himself shot seven times. He looks back on that now and sees a divine plan and says, God spared me that day for something. I believe it was so that I can look out for my son as he grows up. The psychologists Patrick Tolan and Nancy Guerra at the University of Illinois in Chicago document that the most effective treatment for, treatments for delinquent and criminally violent youth emphasize changes in thinking, cognitive restructuring, coupled with opportunities to practice nonviolent behavior, behavioral rehearsal. Faith is the most profound cognitive restructuring that I know of, and I will return to these lessons in Chapter 8, where we explore issues of rehabilitation for boys imprisoned for murder. And I forgot to mention that this book was first published uh, in hardcover in 1999, uh, yeah, the, the preface is from February of 1999, so the book would have been published just before or just after Columbine. And later on is a, a small section called The Story of One Difficult Child. And James Garbarino says, being born difficult does not mean that a child will end up 
displaying a chronic pattern of aggression and bad behavior in adolescence. I know this from first-hand experience. I myself was a difficult infant and toddler, cranky, troublesome, willful, and aggressive. At the age of two, I was found standing on the wall of the balcony outside our sixth-floor apartment and talking to the cats in the courtyard. When my mother ordered me in, I refused. And that same year, I ran away from home one night and was found wandering the streets in my pajamas. When I was three, the neighbors routinely came to my mother to complain that I was beating up their six- and seven-year-old children. And when I was six, I would stand at the top of the monkey bars on the playground, let go with my hands, and challenge other children to try and shake me off. But by the time I reached adolescence, my aggressive days were over and I became something of a model citizen. I was vice president of the student council and editor of the yearbook in my high school. I was even sent to Washington in 1964 as an exemplary youth by the Lions Club in my town. Few who saw the difficult child I was at three would have predicted the model citizen I became at the age of 16. So why, why did I turn out as I did while other difficult children did not? My success had a lot to do with the social context in which I grew up. My family, my neighborhood, my community, excuse me, my family, my neighborhood, my community, my school. I was the first child in my family and for more than four years the only child, so I had my parents all to myself. My mother devoted her every minute to me, literally, quote, taming me as one would a wolf pup. My father was there for me, a positive force in my life. And when I started elementary school, I was assigned to strong and effective teachers in the early grades who took charge of me and the rest of their students and made sure we behaved in a civilized manner. Although I lived some of my early years in a public housing project in New York City, it was when, quote, the projects were still a safe and sane place before they began the descent that transformed them into a war zone 20 years later. I was taken to church every Sunday morning, and the president of our country was a trusted and reassuring father figure. When I turned on the television or went to the movies, the violence I, was, the violence I saw was very tame by today's standards. And the sexiest thing on either, on either screen was a slow kiss. When I reached adolescence, I went to a small high school where I felt safe and was taught by teachers who cared for me. There were no gangs, guns, or drugs in my neighborhood. And each of these elements of my life supported, protected, guided, and nurtured me. A boy like Malcolm, who was mentioned earlier in the book, experiences a negative mirror image of my early life. For each protective factor I experienced, he is dealt a risk factor. Context matters. And one of the most important features of context is the balance between protective influences and threatening risk factors. And here is another section called, How is violence possible? 
on the dark side. And it says depersonalization and desensitization open the door to unlimited possibilities for violence. When we depersonalize others, we fail to see their individuality, their humanity, and we treat them in an impersonal way. If empathy is the enemy of violence, depersonalization is its ally. The more we are able to create psychological distance between us and others, the more likely we are to commit acts of violence and aggression against them. That's why all the various isms that dehumanize us play into the hands of violence, and it is why racism and violence are linked. By depersonalizing them, good, caring people can support barbaric treatment of others. They put them outside their own circle and into the category of, quote, the other. Desensitization is another side of this principle. Even the most violent of the violent boys almost never go from the A to Z of violence in one step. A recent review of research by military psychologist David Grossman reveals something very disturbing about current youth socialization. Grossman points out that even as late as World War II, only about 20% of American soldiers, regular riflemen, not special forces, were able to point their weapon at the enemy and shoot them. Why? He believes it is because the fundamental human inhibition against violence towards other humans was operating even in soldiers who had already gone through basic training. Of course, from a technical point of view, this was a problem for the military, which it set out to resolve. The military discovered that it was possible to overcome this inhibition by simply changing the cha simply changing the training procedures. And this is an incredible story here. Until World War II, the military trained soldiers to shoot at bullseye targets. Soldiers could get very good at this, but when a human being was put in a gun sight, many soldiers could not pull the trigger. In fact, 80% couldn't pull the trigger. The military changed the training after World War II, and by the time we were engaged in the Vietnam War, 90% of American soldiers were able to shoot their weapon at the enemy. How did the military do this? They did it through desensitization, that is, by training soldiers to shoot at human figures and not at abstract targets, like the old-fashioned bullseye. How is this relevant? to understanding violent youth today. Grossman sees it this way, and here's a quotation. With the advent of interactive point-and-shoot arcade and video games, there is a significant concern that society is aping military conditioning, but without the vital safeguard of discipline. There is strong evidence to indicate that the indiscriminate civilian application of combat conditioning techniques as entertainment may be a key factor in the worldwide skyrocketing violent crime rates, including a sevenfold increase in per capita aggravated assaults. Many parents, educators, and mental health professionals 
had discussed and debated the psychological significance of violent video games, but here is the clearest explanation of why this issue should concern us. We are teaching young people to have the same disinhibition that modern soldiers have, but without the pro-social structure and discipline that soldiers are taught. As Grossman points out, the lasting influence of that structure and discipline is one reason that despite the massive prevalence of post-traumatic stress disorder among Vietnam-era veterans and the fact that their suicide rates are very high, their homicide rate is, if anything, lower than that of their non-militarized peers. That is, military discipline serves as a kind of restraining force against this disinhibition. Similarly, although many youths grow up with guns, grew up with guns in years gone by, they learned military-like discipline with respect to those guns and only used them to shoot at non-human targets. Both inhibitions may have served as protective factors. Today, the combination of ready access to real guns, video game practice at shooting human beings, a general loosening of social controls, and increasingly frequent violent imagery on television and in movies poses a new danger. And part of me actually wonders if, it, if there's even a point in reading this out loud here, because most people who hear that will just turn this off, um, because it does sound so quaint, but I wonder, I wonder if that is the case. Uh, Garbarino goes on to say, Lost my place. Garbarino goes on to say, Brigadier General S.L.A. Marshall, the official U.S. military historian of World War II in Europe, commissioned a study of the psychological functioning of soldiers in conditions of chronic combat. His study revealed that among American soldiers who were in combat continuously for 60 days, the psychiatric casualty rate was 98% meaning that when the experience of violent trauma is intense and chronic, virtually no one is immune. Those 98% of American soldiers who became psychiatric casualties had to be taken off the line and rehabilitated before they were able to go back into service. But what about the 2% who did not become psychiatric casualties? The researchers found out that these men were psychopaths. The lesson? Unless you are crazy to start with, you will go down emotionally if you move into a war zone. Very few people have immunity to this level of violence and human misery. I think the results of this study are important in understanding senseless youth violence. As Malcolm says, quote, you place any one of them you place any one of them people outside, you put them in that predicament, and they are going to do the same thing, end quote. And that is one of the boys that Garbarino is dealing with. You place any one of those people outside, you put them in the same predicament I've lived through, and they're going to do the same thing. If you walk there, if you walk in his shoes, you will not be unaffected, unaffected. You will not have the choices that perhaps you think you have now unless you either have remarkable transcendent self-discipline and structure 
or are so profoundly psychologically damaged that you will enjoy killing a human being. Another way of stating the lesson learned from Marshall's research is this. Resilience is not absolute. Some settings overwhelm human capacities. Psychologist Pat Tolan at the University of Illinois studied 15-year-old kids in Chicago. His study answered the following question. What percent of kids are resilient? If we measure resilience as neither being more than one year behind in school and requiring remedial education, nor having mental health or developmental problems sufficient to require professional intervention to recover. Over a two-year period, Tolan studied 15-year-old African-American kids who were living in disruptive families and growing up in the most afflicted war zone neighborhoods of Chicago. The answer he found to his question was zero percent. None of the 15-year-olds were resilient in the sense that they escaped both significant academic deficit and mental health impairment. This is a kind of peacetime analog to Marshall's study of American soldiers in World War II. The relentless pressure imposed on children exposed to the lethal combination of community violence, family disruption, racism, and personal experience of trauma is uniformly overwhelming. The accumulation of threat is too much for any of them to bear. But let us not forget that even many boys from outside the confines of overtly abusive families and war zone neighborhoods feel this pressure. As therapist Terence Real makes clear in his book, I Don't Want to Talk About It, most boys feel an intense pressure by virtue of the dictates of masculine socialization to be tough, to suppress tender emotion, and to be powerful. This pressure often produces a false grandiosity when the allure of power and dominance become as addictive as drugs. Excuse me. Michael Carneal in Kentucky said what he really wanted was, quote, more respect from the kids. Kip Kinkle, the school shooter in Oregon, was smaller than many other kids, but he used his temper to compensate for his lack of size. He never backed down from a confrontation and was often the aggressive one, pushing and shoving. Although the concept of resilience was developed by researchers and clinicians, it has increasingly become a kind of moral judgment, policy explanation or excuse. After it was popularized in the 1970s and 1980s, it wasn't long before some policymakers started saying that we don't need to have intervention or prevention programs because children are resilient. For me, this reached a kind of absurdly logical conclusion in a courtroom when a prosecutor asked a boy who was being tried for first-degree murder, what's wrong with you that you weren't resilient growing up in that environment? Other kids seem to survive without becoming criminals. What's wrong with you? The truth is, many kids in the same circumstances as the boy who was on trial for murder actually are becoming criminals. In their review of serious violent offenders, 
psychologist Rolf Labor and criminologist David Farrington report that 85% of kids who commit serious violent offenses in juveniles do not get caught. And what is more, while some kids in difficult situations respond with criminal acts, with severe externalizing behaviors, as the psychologists put it, other equally troubled kids respond with self-destructive acts and inner turmoil, with what psychologists call internalizing problems, that is, headaches, depression, self-loathing, bad dreams, and the like. Michael sits in jail, awaiting a death sentence. His brother Robert has never committed a criminal act, but he is, but he is a very troubled young man, with no relationships, chronic nightmares, and stomach aches. Overall, more and more kids are succumbing to the pressure of dealing with the dark side, whereas in the mid-1970s, psychologist Tom Aichenbach and his colleagues found that 10% of all American kids were sufficiently troubled and developmentally disrupted to require professional mental health intervention. Today, his research indicates that, that number is about 20%. Psychiatrist Leonor Terre reports on the deterioration of what is called future orientation in her study of the Chowchilla kidnapping, an incident in which a group of children were kidnapped and buried underground for two days before escaping. A year later, when asked how long they expected to live, these children reported that these children reported answers that were on average six or seven years less than the answers given by children unaffected by that traumatic event. One of the things trauma does is undermine your sense of security in the future, your future orientation. At the extreme, trauma produces something we call terminal thinking. Ask a lost 15-year-old, what do you expect to be when you are 30? And he says, I expect to be dead. Terminal thinking is a major impediment to everyday posit to everything positive we would want teenagers to do, because almost everything positive depends upon their having a future orientation. If you are a traumatized adolescent, why would you study? Why would you stay in school? Would you drive carefully or avoid drugs? Why would you have safe sex, or better, still, no sex at all? Why would you do anything that adults want teenagers to do if you didn't envision yourself in the future? This is what Malcolm was talking about on my 50th birthday, when he looked at me wistfully and said, Wow, 50 years old. I might make it to 30, maybe. And then he said to me, You know, if I wasn't here in prison, I'd be dead already. As we will see in chapter 8, that very recognition be can become the starting point for finding a way back for violent boys and the basis for reclaiming them. I'm glad that section ends on, a, on an up note. I hope that uh, listeners will see that if I can read poems here or fragments from other 
books of nonfiction, or if I can share myths here. Um, I hope that it's uh, obvious that something like this also shares the same space and should continue to do so. Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to Human Voices Wake Us, the number one, at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.